I've been wanting to talk about the church and its needs, and I wanted to give you something in your hand for you to read and understand that book is really a short book, 71-page long book. And he talks about the means of grace. We are familiar with that word, awardings. The normal word would be the ordinary means of grace, as our confession, Shorter Catechism says. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? Outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us The benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially the Word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. But the book that I've given you, he changes that Word into essential means of grace, and I like that. So I want you to read that book on your own. Um, Not only to prepare for the teaching, but also so you know what it means to utilize those instruments that God had placed in us to grow in Christ. In that book, uh, in the essential means in his book, he discusses uh, those means of grace under these headings. The scriptures, prayer. And he takes repentance and confession out into a new chapter, which is a a new thing, and the church. And he discusses the ordinances of God, namely the baptism and the Lord's Supper, under the heading of the church. And I like that, uh, because we are supposed to utilize the instruments that God has given us under the church, in the church of Christ. So... I am going to follow, because we talked about prayer, remember, past few weeks. And I am going to jump right into the chapter 5 of that book. And the heading is the church. And he has few things that he will discuss. Uh, So I want you to go home and read it, the chapter 5, the church and he has few subheadings. And I am not going to follow strictly, one by one. I may take some detours and I may spend some more time on certain issues. But I want you to have that ready in your mind. And I may announce ahead of time on Twitter what to read and what to watch. And I understand the topics that I will be dealing with at least for a few weeks in coming weeks, may not be the most exciting topics, but it is essential. It is very, very important that you understand those things. So I want you to have your Bibles ready, and the confessions ready, and those booklets and whatever that I'll be sending out, read ahead. That will be a great encouragement to all of you and for our church as well. The first topic under the chapter chapter 5, the church in that little book, is, as I've given you, I just quoted that title in our sermon, The Qualified Elder-Led Church. 
He begins, Washer begins that section in this way. One of the greatest means of grace that God has given us is faithful and humble ministers of the gospel who bear the biblical qualifications of an elder and are devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. I do not disagree with that statement, but I am reading it to you so that you will not be confused. Traditionally speaking, none of us, that is, who are standing in the Reformed tradition, would not say the ministers are the means of grace. Ordinances are. And obviously, in the discussion of the ordinances of Christ, ministers are presupposed. But to talk about ministers as means of grace is something new. Uh, So I'm not comfortable with what he's saying. But he begins his discussions in that way. And overall, it makes sense. Without those pastors, how can we uh, be blessed by the ordinances God has placed in us for us? So today, what we are going to talk about today is, from the Word, the qualifications of an elder and as we have discussed it in the book of church order. In the elders, we have teaching elders and ruling elders, but more or less ruling elders today because that's what we need in this church. To talk about that, let us rewind and go back to book of Acts. If you would remember book of Acts, which we preached through a couple of years ago, starting from Acts 13, you will see Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, as you know. You are familiar with that. And let me just briefly talk about strategies, if I can use that word. First thing is, he would always go out as a team. Actually, that was the design of the Holy Spirit. So, Acts 13.2 will say this. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then they go. It was the wisdom of God in that God will pair men up to send them out for the mission works. And as you know, they will go around and preach the gospel and and today's term, plant the churches. So they will go out as a team and later on Paul will go out with Silas and Barnabas with Mark and so on. Another strategy is what? They will go to a city and they will always make synagogues as their base camp. Right? Once that northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed, the Jewish people were spread all over the world and wherever they went... Because the temple was no more, they started these synagogues. And we are familiar with them, even in New York City. So Apostle Paul will go to a city and he will always seek out to go to the synagogues. Why? Because there are the Jews who will share the same beliefs about the Old Testament. And he will preach from the word about Christ. And there are some mix of Gentiles, as you know, God-fearing Gentiles, uh, The Hellenists are there and they are also there to hear the word as well. So that was his strategy. He would always go 
and find a synagogue and he will preach from that place. And what happens afterwards would be that the Lord will add unto their number. And let me just read from Acts 13 and 14. 13.43 Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. So they pair up, they go to a city, they seek out the synagogues, and they preach from there and flow out of that synagogue and preach to the town. And Christ adds the disciples by converting people into church, as you know. What happens usually afterwards? Opposition comes from the Jewish people. And when it becomes life-threatening, they will flee to the next town. Next town. I'm going to read from Acts 14 and following. They became aware of it. That is the death threat plot. And fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. And if you would turn to that reference page in the bulletin, I want us to see the pattern that is set by the team. Apostle Paul, if you recall a couple of years ago, when we were meeting in that Presbyterian church in Queens Village, I was quoting from you Eckhard Schoenabel's book on Paul the Missionary. When we read from Book of Acts, it is not immediately clear when from Book of Acts 13 and following, you look like, it looks like Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they go out and start preaching and converting people and planting churches and whatnot. But I try to explain from that book, by the time Apostle Paul goes to that mission journey in Acts 13, he already had how many years? About 10 to 15 years of his mission works. He was not a novice. He was not a seminary graduate, if you will. He was already an experienced missionary. Where, how, we have discussed it already at the time. Let's have that in mind. This is not his first attempt. That's how we usually read these books, but it is not. He spent already countless hours evangelizing, planting churches, and dealing with churches in Arabia, uh, Nabataean kingdoms, and so on. We talked about. So when we read in this section, chapter 14 and following, I simply want you to know that this is not his first mission journey. And, and read with me, starting from verse 19 and following. Verse 19, they went to that new region, and they are at 
Uh, verse 19, we are at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch, that is not their hometown Antioch, the home church, but Pisidian Antioch, and Iconium. And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Think about that. They are traveling in modern-day Turkey, and they're going city after city, and opposition comes, they're trying to kill them, so they go to another city, and they were being successful. What happens well, prior to these verses is that uh, Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, hears someone, and people wanted to sacrifice to them. I don't know if you remember. And he said, no, we are men, and he preached the gospel. Many people believed, but the Jews from previous towns tracked after them, followed them, and this is what they did. They won over the crowds, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Verse 20. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up. That is impossible. He got up and entered the city. Now, he was just stoned in the city. He goes back to the city. And the next day, right, they flee to another town. He went away with Barnabas to Derby. That is the a final destination in the first missionary journey. Now, if you go to verse 21, and here is the pattern that I want you to think about as we discuss the elders. After they had preached the gospel to that city, that is Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned, think about that, they returned to Lystra. That's where he was stoned. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, where the Jews came. By the way, they went through these cities already. And remember, they followed them from these cities. But what Apostle Paul and the team would do after Derby, they would track back and go back to the cities where they had preached the gospel and where they were. Disciples, or if you would, they had churches already established. So they returned is the key word. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. Look at verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We'll pause right there. Second missionary journey. The second missionary journey starts the same way. Because Apostle Paul would say to Barnabas, let us go back. I'll pause and just make a one comment. In modern terms, we talk about church planting, church planting networks, and so on. But what is often missing from those discussions is that, that those verses. It was not really so much about Starting new churches, as we talk about these days. Starting churches around the block, how many churches in 10-year period, and so on. He will go to those cities, and he will backtrack and go back and revisit those cities. What did he do? Strengthening, encouraging them. So once that is missing, it really becomes number game. And I, I, do not, I don't think that is right. But here you see, he preached the gospel. By the grace of God, people come to Christ. But he will not go into another journey in a totally new place. But he will go back, strengthen, encourage those church plans, if you will. And now, verse 23. 
This is where we, could, we, we get the idea. Look at this, verse 23. When they, while they're coming back through those towns again, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. And you should un underline that. He's going back and encouraging and strengthening all those existing churches. And all those scholars agree the first missionary journey at the most would have existed, I mean, lasted only a couple of years. And he goes, he comes back, and all the way to the home church in Antioch. But on the way back, in verse 23, what the team did was when they had appointed elders in plural for them in what? Every church. Having prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is a relatively young churches. Think about that. When they had appointed elders, not deacons, this is a risky attempt. Young churches, on the way back, they appointed elders for them in every church. And what do they do? They pray with fasting and they commended them to the Lord. This is risk-taking. They have to survive on their own with their relationship with the Lord. And they move on. And the second missionary journey basically is that he wanted to revisit these churches. Now, if that is the pattern set forth from the scriptures, then let's draw some basic conclusions from here. This may be the basic ideas for many of you but for some of you, and maybe for the young people, you need to listen to this. First conclusion that we may draw from these texts, before we even look at uh, 1 Timothy 3. The New Testament church is to be governed by the elders. That's exactly what you have seen from the word. You do not see bishops in modern sense presiding over the regional churches, one man, like Methodist church or Catholic church. New Testament churches to be ruled by the elders. Basic enough, but in the South where I grew up, there are many Southern Baptist churches. Obviously, there are many different kinds and denominations, but Properly speaking, Southern Baptist churches do not have elders. One of my sisters, not my you know, real sisters, but in, in our ministry, went to Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, a long time ago. So she asked questions to the professors in Southern Baptist Seminary. According to the Bible, it talks about elders. How come Southern Baptist churches do not have elders? She didn't get an answer. So you have to decide, right? There are many churches in the world. And if you move to different towns because of job, studies, whatever, you will be looking for churches. And you have to understand what is biblical church. Churches that are ruled by the 
elders. That leads us to the second principle. If you pick up any kind of uh, book on the elders, the elders or church, you will find this principle that is called, often called plurality of elders. Based upon this verse 23 and most of the New Testament references to uh, the churches around that, that time, the consistent pattern of the New Testament is that every church had several elders. We don't know how many, but here too. So grammar matters. It is in plural. In every church, they appointed plural elders. The wisdom of God is that, obviously, God did not want to entrust his church to a single man. Why? For obvious reasons. We all know what that could lead to. So plurality of elders are supposed to function as check and balances. As you have heard from the book of church order, ruling elders' job is to carefully look at the doctrine and life of the ministers and to help him in his ministry. So two simple things I want you to keep in mind. New Testament churches, the pattern is not Pope. Pattern is not bishops who would have so much power over these regional churches. But the elders and plurality of elders in each church. And I was struck by how they appointed elders. No deacons? So I looked it up and one person, professor at Dallas Seminary, says this. The leadership of the church from the earliest period always had elders even if it did not have deacons. Young churches only had elders. More mature churches had both elders and deacons. That is an interesting observation. Now then, if appointing elders in each and every church was pattern that is set forth from the Bible, then what did he, Apostle Paul and the team, what did they look for in such men? And that's where our text, main text, will come into play. First Timothy 3 and elsewhere too. But this is the primary text for the qualifications for an elder. Remember, elder, bishop, those words that overseer are used interchangeably in the New Testament. And in this passage, the qualifications are discussed on the four headings. His moral character, his home life, his spiritual maturity, and his public reputation. But like I said in the beginning, my aim today is simple. A while ago, a church asked me to help raise a deacon in a church. And what came to my mind was that to train that person was not to recommend books to him, but to go to the Word of God. And I asked him to read the portions of the Scriptures once every day for a few days. You don't have to read somebody's theology. Just go to the Word and see yourself in the Word and through the Word. Today's aim, we are not talking about the functions of an elder, differences between preaching elder, teaching elder, and ruling elder. 
and even Presbyterianisms, the all the structures, we are not talking about that. I'm talking about this because RPC needs ruling elders. And what we need to do is to go to the Word and read the text and pray. I cannot talk about every single verse, but Paul Washer in his book, which I want you to read again, he says this, after that section, he says this, These qualifications are not options or something to grow into later, but they are non-negotiable demands. What do you think? Is it too harsh? The main strategy of Satan in his attempt to weaken the church of Christ is to put unqualified men into the leadership positions. I don't have to tell you, if you grew up in a church in your life, probably you have seen good elders. Chances are you have also seen some bad elders. I'm a young man, so I do not have a long experience. Some, but I know this. It takes a man, single man, to bring down a church. It does not take ten bad, corrupt elders to bring down a church. You could have nine, and you put one wrong man, the church just crashes to the ground. I remember having a conversation with a man, and I've seen this pattern many times, when pastor is missing, that is, either in transition or something happened in a church, I've seen more than once, more than twice, the elders would rewrite the bylaws. And then, during those times, they will appoint elders. That is not the time to appoint elders, but they will do it because that is the only time that could get into that leadership position. And what followed in my own experience was that it was one of the worst things that I had to witness. So I remember telling to my, having conversation with my colleague, you see, we have no one else to blame. Simply put, we did not Take the word of God seriously. God's word is clear, as you could see. But you either ignore this, bypass this, and even, I could imagine, if you're like Paul Washer who says, this is not something that you will grow into later, but they are non-negotiable demands. I could even hear people saying, you have no grace. You are not a loving pastor. And you don't know how many people change after the ordination. You just cannot predict that. A man who was so humble in his ministry in the church, everybody recognized that man to be an elder quality man. As soon as he was ordained, You'll be surprised how men could change like that. And it's too late. When you think you are wiser than God, 
that is ignore this tamper with this then you are being proud we must take the word of God seriously because this is Christ's church MacArthur says on this verse choosing the right elders was to be done by measuring men against a divinely inspired checklist of qualifications. Since godly leaders have always been the backbone of the church, it is essential that they be qualified. We are not looking for perfection, but this is straightforward, clear qualifications that is set forth from the word by God for his own church. And how many times have I seen that people just ignore this? Why? Because so many people see the eldership as an achievement, as a reward, or as an opportunity for advancement. But we are in a unique position as a church uh, that either we could follow the word of God and see what God does when we obey His word, or do it, God forbid, in our own terms. I want you to look at verse 1 there. Again, I am not going to spend all these qualifications. It is very straightforward. It does not require too much explanation. But I want you to look at verse 1. It says this, It is a trustworthy statement, and that phrase only occurs in his epistle, to the pastors, pastoral epistles. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine or literally good work he desires to do. You see the pattern already. It is not. Could you please consider becoming an elder? We need it. But if any man aspires to the office of overseer. I want to explain that word. It's voice. English, there's active and passive, right? In Greek, there's something called middle voice. When you translate middle voice, subject is doing something upon himself or herself. So, when it says, if any man aspires, that's in the middle voice. If any man aspires in himself to the office of overseer should be the understanding. What does that mean? Those who seek the office of overseer must have a spirit-given, compelling desire for it. Then, man driven by an inner passion actively seek to serve the church. Then, the congregation either affirms or rejects that calling, calling based on how the man's life measure up to the standards of the Holy Spirit that is found in the scriptures. It has to go both ways. You cannot force someone or, or appeal to the need of the church. You see, if you do not volunteer, our church is going to, to be in a bad shape. I want you to just step up and be an elder. That is not the idea. It is, as according to the word, 
if any man, any man aspires in himself, within himself, there has to be God-given desire to the office of overseer. Some may think among the congregation, is it a sinful thing to desire to be an elder? According to the word of God, obviously it is not. Right? Some may think, oh, maybe I am, I am becoming too conceited. Who am I to aspire to be an elder? But according to the word of God, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a good work he desires to do. That's it, really. He doesn't promise anything, any reward. It simply says, if you desire that office, it's a good thing that you're desiring too. Brian Chappell was known for his Christocentric preaching, the book, christ Center Preaching. He says this, comments on this verse. Such aspiration in a man is a lovely thing. How beautiful it is when a man sets his heart on the virtues essential to spiritual leadership. At the same time, an overweening desire for position is reason for automatic disqualification. Such ambition indicates that a man does not understand either the job or what will be required personally and professionally. I like the way he put it. Such an aspiration is a good thing, it's a lovely thing. How beautiful it is to see that desire in a man who set his heart upon the virtues. I, I, it was really an eye-opening. Not simply, oh, I want to be an elder. But verses 2 and following. I want to be such a man. And he is uh, well-balanced when he says, it's a good thing and beautiful thing for you to desire such an office and the virtues essential to the spiritual leadership. But at the same time, all you are focused is to be in that leadership position. It is a disqualifying desire. It's an ambition. So with that, I am just going to a few applications and we'll be done today. As I was just meditating upon these verses this past week, with the help of another man's commentary, I came to this conclusion. Our church in next few weeks, uh, but we will be talking about some of the essential practices and pieties of Reformed churches. But it came to my mind, our church's need is in that, as we talk about ruling elders. But, when you look at these qualifications, mostly, mostly they are what? Characters. Man's godly character. Then I would say first application or something that prayer topic that I want to share with you is this. We must pray our young men would be the next generation teaching and ruling elders of his church. It is not going to happen overnight. Instead of focusing on our immediate need of our church, when you step back and look at this text, I want all of our young men to hear me. 
even five, six, seven, eight-year-old boys, teens, people in their 20s, maybe. As you have seen from the Word of God, when you aspire to the office of an overseer, that is an elder, whether teaching or ruling, it is a beautiful thing in God's sight. As such, all young men should put your aspirations on, as Brian Chappell said, on the qualifications. Right? It will take decades to produce these qualities in men. So my attention, first and foremost, turned to our young people in our church. And fathers, brothers, you need to explain this to your children when you go home. Not to put false hope but to stay faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ and tell them you are the next generation leaders for His church. And practically speaking, where else we are going to get the next generation leaders? I used to, whenever I had a chance to, you know, you go to like summer camps and you preach to young men, college groups and youth groups. I used to have this dedication times. If God calls you to become a minister or missionaries, why don't you give your lives to Christ? Things like that. But I realized what I need to do often in our church is to remind our young people, our own young men who are growing up as covenant children of this church to aspire to be an overseer in Christ's church. Maybe not Immediately, not next five years. We are talking about long-term project. And how long does it take to produce men of God? And there's no higher calling than that. Secondly, then, to be to, to the older men, I would say a couple of things. First of all, it takes a church to raise the next generation elders. For that, we need a peaceful church. As I always emphasize, church must be at peace. So, strive for the peace and unity of this church. Children cannot maintain that. It is our duty, your duty, all the gentlemen, all the brothers in Christ, to maintain peace and unity of the church so that our young men will grow up aspiring to that office. And, and we need to give our lives for that, to protect our church, to protect our young people. And the second thing that I want to address is, up to uh, older men, is that it is not too late. The Word of God is not here to discourage you but to encourage you. Once again, according to Brian Chappell, not to seek office, but the qualifications of that office. Our proper aim should be, I want to be such a, be a such man. I want to be a man of God. I want to serve Christ. And when you aim to be that, to do that, the office will follow because it will be recognized by the church. 
And God will use you for His glory. And like young men or the men, there's no shortcut. We should be the men of God, men of the word, prayer, family, and service and ministry. People talk about elder training. But how can you train something that is not there? Look at the qualifications. You cannot instill these things overnight because we need an elder. It is a lifelong project. And if God has given you such desire, as long as you repent and believe and try to implement the Word of God into your life, there is hope and there is future. The third and final thing is this. So I want you to pray for the young men in our church. Older men, pray for the older men, for them to have that aspiration in them. Thirdly, I want you to pray for the session, existing session, for their discernment and their wisdom and courage. Discernment and wisdom you may understand. But oftentimes in church life, it takes courage. You know how many times my heart was broken when nine righteous men will remain silent when one man goes in a wrong path. Whatever the desire or motivation was, they are just keeping it quiet as if that is love. It is not. I am convinced it takes more than the wisdom, more than the discernment for his church to prosper. We need courageous men in the leadership position who will stake out everything for the unity and purity of the church and defend it. What were the reformers? What did they do? Puritan fathers and, and the confession writing Westminster divines and all those men... They stood for the truth, as we say. It was not simply for the doctrinal debates. So pray that man will be wise yet courageous to take a stand. And if the word of God says, you will stand your ground. You do not understand how many times in different churches, and I hope not, I hope not this happens in our church, People claiming to be Christians will go around and manipulate, threaten, pressure, accuse, and backstab the leadership. It takes truly, truly men of God to withstand all of that for Christ's sake. So, brothers and sisters, let us pray about these things as we have learned we don't know how to pray for these things for our church. But as we discuss these practical matters for our church, let us go to the Word of God and see it with our own eyes, what the Word of God says. And let us simply obey the Word of God. God will do the rest. Let us stay faithful to our God, the head of this church, Jesus Christ, and his word. Let us pray.